might know, or especially my family that's here this morning, I enjoy watching the Food Channel. Typically, an episode will start with a chef bringing out a finished entree ready to serve. This not only shows you what the completed dish is supposed to look like, but it also whets your appetite to learn how by putting all the ingredients together, you too can have this delicious meal. So I think think this perfectly illustrates our text this morning, which is Genesis 2, verses 4 to 24. In Genesis 1, we see the entire creation account of God. Day by day, through six days, God created everything. And on the seventh day, he rested. So in one sense, we could say that Genesis 1 presents us with the complete meal of God's creation. All the ingredients were included, light, darkness, day, night, heavens, dry land, seas, vegetation, living creatures, and finally, on the sixth day, God created man. So Genesis 2 begins by describing the end of God's week of creation with resting on the seventh day. But as we approach Genesis 2, verses 2 to 24, we now see a closer look at the aspects of of the creation in Genesis 1. So in essence, out of the main entree of creation, chapter 2 now focuses on creation's main ingredient, which is man. So we're here, we have a more detailed account of the beginning history of man. We see how God created man and how he provided a home and how he provided a helpmate for man. We begin in verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and earth when they were created. So the phrase, these are the generations of, it's very important. The phrase is found 10 times in Genesis, and it marks a transition from one part of the book to another. So, for example, we see these are the generations of Adam, chapter 5, verse 1, of Noah, chapter 6, verse 9, Shem, chapter 10, verse 11, or chapter 11, verse 10, and of Isaac, chapter 25, 19, to become, to just name a few. So notice, however, that all of the above references speak of the generations of the heavens and of the earth. So this points to that which heaven and earth generate, that part of creation that came into existence at the time of God's creative work, namely man. And it's man who is the focus of the rest of the chapter. So as we move into verse 5, I have to admit, I kind of struggled a little bit with this verse. So as not to spend a lot of time on the possible meanings in our limited amount of time, I'm just going to revert back to what John MacArthur, how he explained this verse. He says, verse 5 reads, when no, well, let me read the verse first. Verse 5 reads, when no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground. So the narrative does, in fact, begin with day six. The plants and trees from day three did not require rain and did not require tilling of the ground. So the shrubs and plants of the field in verse five are not the shrubs and plants from day three, but they are cultivated plants. The text is only saying that plants which are cultivated by man for food were not planted by God in the garden because man was not yet there to tend them. So the shrubs and plants of verse 5 had not yet sprung up because they were dependent upon the rain, which would come after the flood, and there was no man to till the ground, which would come after the fall. 
So the fall led to rain and tilling of the ground, which brought about certain plants that did not exist before the fall. In Genesis 3.18, we see that part of the curse after the fall also was that the ground would bring forth thorns and thistles. So again, there are several views on this verse. I would encourage you to listen to John MacArthur's message if you want to get a little bit more detailed on it. It's really, it's really fascinating. So, verse 6 states, And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. So since Genesis 2, 10 to 14, speaks of four rivers which flowed around Eden, most likely this water system came from uh, subterranean caverns containing water and possibly steam which condensed and flowed outward to form these rivers. Now we come to our main focus, verse 7. And that brings us to the details of man's creation, where we see the man's body was taken out of the earth. Verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. So God formed man out of the ground, unlike the rest of creation, which spoke, he spoke into existence. The word formed implies that God was directly involved in the shaping and fashioning of man's physical frame. An interesting fact is that our bodies are made up of about 15 chemical elements, the same chemical elements that come from the ground. So we were literally taken out of the dust of the ground. Just as clay is formed by a potter, so God literally took dust, dirt, clay, and earth and formed a human body. So several months ago, Steve, Michelle, Jack, and I, we took a pottery class. <laughs> we put on aprons, we sat in front of pottery wheels containing a blob of clay, which we were tasked to turn into something decorative or useful. <laughs> Needless to say, we had lots of fun laughing at our attempts to make something beautiful, but we quick, quickly learned forming something out of a lump of clay was not easy. Uh, here's mine. <laughs> anyway, okay. So, again, this is a very simple visual, but there was nothing easy or simple about the skill that it took to mold something so intricate on a potter's wheel. It took us hours, hours to complete our project, and yet God, in a short amount of time, created our intricate bodies out of dust. So there's nothing, not enough time to adequately describe how intricate and detailed our bodies are, but think of all the ways our systems have to function for us to survive. I mean, it totally blows my mind. When I think of the remodel of my home, I cried when I literally saw that it was gutted. My husband took down all the walls, all the drywall. We had this shell of a house. It, it took... Um, it took layer by layer. We rebuilt with walls, uh, cabinets, flooring, appliances, furniture, and lastly, with those personal touches of pictures and decorations. So how amazing, then, that God used the dirt of the earth to form our skeletal systems, our bodily systems, and all the intricate genetic traits that make us unique, such as hair, co excuse me, hair color, eye color, personality, just to name a few. It's fascinating to know that our bodies consist of 58 pounds of oxygen, 50 quarts of water, 2 ounces of salt, 3 pounds of calcium, 24 pounds of carbon, chlorine, phosphorus, fat, iron, sulfur, and glycerin. 
The human body is so complex of an entity that no scientist can comprehend more than a fraction of its composition and functions. A small postage size um, uh, skin, you know, piece of skin, has 300 million cells in it. Yet evolutionists would like us to believe that our bodies were created through blind chance. It takes more faith to believe that than to believe that God created us. So when God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, man became a living soul, both physically and spiritually. Man brought, was brought into a marvelous relationship with his creator, and it is this that separates us from all other creatures. Man alone is created in the image of God. Job 33.4 says, The Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. Thus man became a living being. So therefore, in the first Adam, we have the creation of man. Next, we're going to look at the location of man in verses 8 to 9. After creating man, God planted a garden. Verse 8 reads, The Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Some speculate that the garden was somewhere in the Tigris-Euphrates Valley or east of Israel, which is the promised land, but wherever it was, it was lush, green, fertile, and a perfect place to behold. The Babylonians called the lush green land from which water flowed Edenu. Today, the term oasis could easily describe that place. This was a magnificent garden paradise unlike any the world has ever seen. It was a place where God fellowshiped with our first parents created in his image. So further describing the garden, verse 9 reads, And out of the ground the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant in the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So God created natural trees and supernatural trees. Jack and I had the opportunity to go to Columbia um, a few years ago to minister, and I was amazed at all the different kinds of fruits that they have there. I've never seen none, so many I've never seen before, didn't know how to eat them, didn't know if I ate the outer shell or if I had to open them up. There is so much beauty, um, and we're so limited, at least I was so limited here in Florida, it was just absolutely amazing. So you can only imagine what the Garden of Eden looked like. So with the natural trees for food, God also created two supernatural trees, the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. If you ate from the former tree, you would live forever. And if you ate from the latter tree, you would know good and evil. So after planting this lush, beautiful, perfect garden with every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food in Eden, we see the watering system described in verses 10 through 14. And then a river flowed out of Eden to uh, water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first river is Pishon, and it is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Debalim and the onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush, and the name of the third river is Hidekel. I looked those up, and I listened to how you pronounce them. Hopefully I got them right. It is the one which goes toward the east of Assyria. 
and the fourth river is Euphrates. So verse 10 describes a river which ran out of Eden, which upon leaving the garden divided into four rivers, two of which are the well-known Tigris and Euphrates. The other two... The other two rivers were located further east. It would be difficult to pinpoint the Garden of Eden's location based on these rivers alone, as much of the landscape was, has no doubt been altered by the flood. The focus here in Genesis is that God created a water system to care for this beautiful, lush garden. So God created this magnificent garden, which was pleasing to the sight, and which contained every tree imaginable for for food, and which contained two supernatural trees. Then the Lord God placed Adam in the garden with specific instructions. Verse 15, then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend it. So now it was Adam's responsibility to keep and tend the garden which literally means to look after it or to serve or to garden it. Because man had not yet fallen, there were no weeds to pull. So I imagine Adam's job was simply to pick the fruit, prune it, maybe move the soil around the base of the tree um, a little bit. But at any rate, um, he was the gardener and the guardian over the garden. And it's important to see here that God gave Adam a job to do. God gave him a responsibility, something meaningful, something worthwhile to do. It was easy and delightful work, but that would, uh, it wasn't hard work, but that would come after the fall. So right from the beginning, we see God saw work as a blessing, and it was of immense value. And God did not create us to be lazy or to be idle or to be resting constantly. Work is a good thing. So in verse 16, this brings us to our first command. This command to Adam would come as a test to determine his loyalty to God and his love and his satisfaction in all that God had created for him. Adam was given a specific task in verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, command, he didn't ask him, he didn't suggest it, this was a command saying, uh, you uh, saying you shall surely die of ev- you shall surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in that day you eat of it you shall surely die. So right from the start, man was given free will and privilege, but that came with a heavy responsibility before God. Man's decisions then were always to be made in obedience to God. Adam was given a sacred trust to live or not to live in obedience to God. There was no confusion. Adam was given all things richly to enjoy except the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So after Adam giving Adam the command, the Lord then went on to tell Adam what the consequences of his disobedience would be. Sure death. So this was the one restriction given to Adam by God. Adam was given a choice, a necessary choice. God didn't create us as robots. He gave us a mind and he gave us a will to make choices. However, our free will never has and never will override the sovereignty and providence of God in our lives. We are drawn to him in salvation and our salvation is a God from start to finish. The doctrines of grace clearly state state that we are drawn by his irresistible grace and that we contribute nothing. 
Even in the garden, God was not aware, unaware that Adam would violate this one prohibition. So in the divine counsel of the Godhead, our redemption was already planned for. Nevertheless, God still gave Adam this prohibition. And why? This tree reminds us that the moral boundaries God gives us are given for our good, to protect us from the ravages of sin and evil. And when we overstep divinely given boundaries, there are always severe consequences. And in Adam's case, God was clear. In that day, you eat of it, you shall die. This one negative command is set in the context of divine care, though, and provision. It was never meant as a harsh restriction, but it is a warning that when man crosses God-given limits, it hurts rather than enhances human well-being. So here we see that God gave Adam a boundary. He had the freedom to enjoy the garden and the fruit of every other tree. Sin, by its very nature, takes away our freedom. Disobedience to God always brings us under bondage. As believers in Christ, we are no longer slaves to sin. We are no longer under condemnation. Romans 8.1 states, There is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. We are no longer slaves to sin when we are children of God. But even so, freedom without boundaries can easily be abused and quickly become destructive. Our true liberties and freedom in Christ are only within the bounds of Scripture through our obedience to the Scriptures. Think of how similar our parenting is to our children. We set rules, we give them commands, and we have expectations for them to obey. And then we warn our children, as God has warned us, if they violate those commands, there will be consequences. This is the pattern set forth by God, a pattern that was given to our first parents, Adam and Eve. Yet here the violation of God's prohibition would carry the severest of consequences. They would surely die. Not only would they die physically, but their sin would bring condemnation and separation to mankind to such a severe extent that without atonement for sin, man would suffer eternal spiritual deaths, separation from God forever. Yet at this point in our narrative, Adam and Eve had not yet violated God's command. So as we move to verses 18 to 20, we see that God recognized Adam's need for a helper. Adam was perfect, but, but God recognized he was still, in one sense, incomplete. So verses 18 through 20 say, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. John MacArthur jokingly said in one of his messages, it's a good thing that Adam named the animals before Eve was created. Otherwise, they might never have gotten named. <laughs> Does that mean we talk a lot or we can't decide? Um, at any rate, let's look at the word helper in verse 18. That's the word Hebrew word azar, and it speaks of God's strength, power, and protection and help. It implies being a rescuer. 
A helper is someone who assists and encourages. A helper provides support for what is lacking in the one who needs help. For Adam, this meant that God would give him an equal, fitting companion, someone distinct from him, but one who would complete him. So God recognized that Adam needed a helper, someone fit to stand before him, opposite him, and as his counterpart, companion, and complement. So in the process of naming the animals, Adam was acutely aware that there was male and female and that he himself did not have a counterpart. But God was about to change that. In verse 21 to 22, it tells us, So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of the ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Again, woman was made to complete man's insufficiency with the creation of the woman. Adam was now complete. He now had someone who perfectly corresponded to him, yet who was distinct from him. He would now experience beautiful companionship, like uh, pieces of puzzle which fit together. So now, likewise, uh, would Adam and Eve fit together. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul speaks of the beauty of God in creating woman in, uh, in verse 11, 7b, when he says, that woman is the glory of man. Paul then goes on to say in 1 Corinthians 11, 8, for man is not from woman, but woman from man. And neither was man created for the woman, but woman for the man. So here we see God's divine order for men and women. Man, since he was made in the image of God, was made to manifest God's authority. And since the woman was made from man, she was to manifest man's authority. Scripture teaches that man is a reflection of the glory of God, uniquely created to bear the image of God and to have dominion over God's creation. Eve was God's finishing touch for Adam. She, like no other being, completed and harmonized with him. God gave a wife to Adam as a good gift. Many women may struggle with this, but by no means are we inferior to men. Our function is to complete our husbands. And both husband and wives are equally dependent upon one another. Paul brings this out in 1 Corinthians 11, 11 to 12, where he says, Here we read, Nevertheless, the Lord woman is not independent of the man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. Without Eve, Adam could not carry out God's command to be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth. So these verses establish the very foundation of marriage and the subsequent sexual union of two becoming one flesh, as stated in verse 24. Now in verse 23, we see Adam's reaction. I love this. His reaction to this beautiful gift, which may be considered the first poem in Scripture. Verse 23. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. This describes the closest human kinship there is. This poem reflects an attitude in Adam of satisfactory relief that the waiting is over. Finally was woman one who exactly fitted his need. David Atkinson rightly says, the removal of a piece of the man in order to create the woman implies that from now on neither is complete without the other. 
we could actually say this poem was the first marriage vow. So in verse 24 is a verse that is repeated four times in Scripture, so you know it's important. It is cross-referenced in Matthew 19.5, Mark 10.7-8, Ephesians 5.31, which reads, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This verse clearly describes the institution of marriage. In Genesis 1.28, God commanded Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. It was God's design that one man and one woman together for one lifetime would unite and produce offspring. So I do ask my husband to go over my message to make sure that you know, things flow and maybe something's misspelled or whatever. So, and then he prints it out for me. And so as I'm reading it over, this is what my husband puts in here. <laughs> in be, uh, this I put, in being Jack's partner is my joy to be his completer, to help free him up to do what God has called him to do. He put in, and trust me, he is in need of some heavy completing. <laughs> he says, in fact, I could spend the whole time just talking about that. I said, I'm not going to say that to the ladies. <laughs> he doesn't, really. I, I love him dearly. Okay, so let us return back to verse 24, because there are some uh, important things to note here. First, a man is commanded to leave his father and mother and to cleave to his wife. We have to understand that from a biblical perspective, marriage is a covenant relationship before God. It is a covenant that has social, external, and legal ramifications between two people that are consenting to marry. A marriage begins a new social arrangement in which a husband and wife now declare their primary accountability to one another in the midst of a wider social context. This is why God commands a husband, and by implication a wife, to first leave father and mother. So leaving points to the establishment of a new family unit. Now, a couple is to find their emotional, physical, and spiritual needs fulfilled first and foremost in one another and not in the dependency of others, especially our parents. The primary covenant is with one another. So the word leave in Hebrew implies forsaking dependence upon others, literally losing yourself from your parents. It's not that we abandon others or we stop loving our parents or that we don't ask them for advice at times, but it does mean that our spouses are our primary go-to, people before going to others. They are to be considered ahead of and over others. So I know if you were at the conference last weekend, um, Jack mentioned during our conference how hard it was for him to officiate uh, our daughter Amy's wedding. We both loved Matt, her husband, but he realized that when he pronounced them husband and wife, that his role of authority, protection, and care would be handed over to Matt, and that Matt would become the primary influence in Amy's life. It was hard for Jack because he knew that this is what God had commanded in marriage. Second is the issue of cleaving. This is a covenant faithfulness word. This word in Hebrew literally means to cling, to fasten a, a grip, to hold fast, or to remain steadfast. It is a promise to stick by one another by willing choice, to forsake all others for richer, for poor, sickness and in health, and for better or worse. It's faithfulness to one's covenant vows, to God's calling in marriage, to the person whom you wed. 
This whole verse speaks to the preeminence and the priority that a husband and wife are to have for one another. How fitting then as well that Paul saw marriage as a picture of Christ loving the church. Our Lord showed the depth of his love and devotion to us through the new covenant by giving his very life for us. If you were, uh, oh, I'm not going to say that. Anyway, sorry, moving on. So we end this section with verse 25. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Adam and Eve were still in a state of innocence. They were not ashamed because they didn't know any evil. They had no capacity to have shame because they had no capacity for evil. Although we will see in the next chapter that this fellowship, this state of innocence would be shattered through the sinful disobedience to God. But as of yet, this was an openness and a unity between them, not masked by guilt and not hampered by shame. And as of yet, both Adam and Eve found complete gratification in the joy of their one union and their service to God. With no inward principle of evil within, the solicitation to sin had to come from without. Tragically, ladies, the glory, beauty, and freedom of the garden is not a reality in the world we know. When sin entered the world, man's relationship to others and to the world became tainted through selfishness, self-indulgence, and self-centeredness. More often than not, man's free, excuse me, freedom today is expressed in disobedience to God. Why God chose to create man with the possibility to fall ultimately falls within the mystery of God. Certainly, if for no other reason, it was for his glory. But God could, would go on to make provision, praise God, for man after the fall so that through the atoning work of Christ there would be hope for his redemption. And so we conclude that in crea- creating us, God declared that it was good and that through the second Adam, man would be redeemed, restored, and brought into God's everlasting kingdom to enjoy his fellowship, a fellowship which again will be unhindered, by sin and death, those being defeated by our Lord Jesus Christ. So instead of closing in prayer, I do want to read you, I'm not exactly sure, it's the book that we recommended at the conference, uh, Gospel Primer. And just, it's, it's a little poem, and I'm only reading half of it because I think it so applies to what we've been studying, and maybe some of you are aware of this and you've read it. But here it goes. Beholding the heavens, I now understand. God measured them all with the breath of his hand. He fashioned the trillions of stars in the sky, the sun and the moon he established on high. All heaven and earth, which he made in six days, show daily and nightly his merit of praise. So wondrously caring in God every day, creating, sustaining my life every way. Each breath I intake, every beat of my heart, all pleasures well tasted are his to impart. Indeed, for such blessings he should be adored and honored supremely as eminent Lord. In fact, for this purpose he brought me to be that I might his glory and kindliness see and cherish him fully in all of my days, obeying with pleasure whatever he says, fulfilling the calling he's laid upon me to show forth his glory deliberately. And I would pray that this would be your prayer. Thank you. You are dismissed.